You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximizer How. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, for some of you, this has been gun season. The introduction to gun season has happened. Gun season is on the horizon for me. My hunting season has been really productive. I've been really pleased. My property has been highly productive. A lot of deer, a lot of young deer. I have not killed. I'm okay with that. And I'm, I'm just strategizing for the future. Um, I'm into the swing of things with clients. I start clients here in a really just a few weeks and uh, I got tons of reports to still get done. So I'm behind on my workload. And I say that because, you know, we get wrapped up in all these different activities, uh, whether it's hunting, uh, spending time with family, holidays are coming up. And, you know, you, you got to prioritize what's important. Obviously my business is important and making sure my clients are happy as well. But, you know, it's taking the time to look at information that you have in front of you and starting to assess what you need to do next. I'm really excited because uh, we have a gentleman coming on this podcast today that uh, he's not a regular. He's not one of our standard guys that comes on this because I wanted to kind of expand a little bit people that we talk to to get more information to help us try to assess our environments at kind of a different level. Uh, he's a data guy and I'm a data guy. So uh, let me get him on the line real quick. Hey, Bill, are you on the phone? I'm here. How you doing? Oh, great. Okay, so we got Bill Thompson on the phone. He's with Spartan Fords. Um, some of you are familiar with the app. It's been, I think, Bill, would you say this app has been a progressive app? You've kind of come out with iterations of it, and, and it's kind of more in a, I don't know, finalized stage, and I'm sure it's across the country because I got buddies that are using it. Yeah, so uh, the app came out about a year ago, and, uh, yeah, we're, we're definitely iterating, and uh, we have actually some more features coming out here pretty soon. I'd say we're about... 75% to where we want the application to be. And then we'll be adding things here and there, but there's a couple of other key features we'll be releasing, but yeah, it's, it's pretty much 
it's it's getting it's getting close. A couple things you got to do, but it's close. Yeah, that's good. And and we're not going to maybe dive into the app too much, but I think some of the intel related to that is, is really critical. So I'm going to get a little background on you. I remember you being an intel analyst in the Air Force. Is that correct? Uh, I was in the Army. Yeah, I was okay. an intelligence analyst in the Army doing um, multiple disciplines of intelligence collection, um, signals intelligence, cyber on net operation stuff, human intelligence, and uh, a couple of other things, but those are the main ones. I did that as an enlisted guy for about 10 years and as a warrant officer uh, for about 10 years, um, just basically like a technician. But yeah, my, my focus was uh, intelligence operations in the military. Yeah, that's cool. All those ints, humits, all those different uh, defensive type mindsets. I, I'm a bit familiar with that. Um, I've, I've got some uh, uh, friends and family in the uh, in those type of industries. And, and so I, I've got a, a bit of familiarity. Um, but it's funny because that really correlates to some of the data analytics stuff that you've done with the deer. And uh, I want to hear about kind of, you know, some of the information that you've uh, evaluated over the years and what you've looked at. And building this app that you came up with, how you've kind of, so there's, there's, there's two different strategies. One's could be, you know, you're looking at the information and movement as it relates to, well, we'll just say weather, for example. Um, and you've taken, I think a little step further than that. There's much more information landscape wise, and, and you're really diagnosing a lot more information, uh, for, you know, hunters to, to understand kind of what the ranges of movement are, which is a little bit unique to a lot of these other apps that are out there. So can you give a little background and kind of how you got to where you're at today? Yeah. So it's been a long road. Um, it ba- I, I, there's multiple ways I can tackle that question, but I, I guess I'll start with kind of the first way I, I tried to do it was, I, I built a sensor network for a property that I hunt out in the Midwest. And what I mean by that is I had set up just like, um, accelerometers, um, which are essentially, you know, vibration sensors and, um, some cameras that I wired up with weather vanes and I had access to this property that I knew really well. So on that property, I just set up cameras everywhere where I knew there were historical scrapes, where I knew there were rubs, where I knew there were, there was bedding set all of this stuff up. And for almost two years, um, I had everything pushing to a computer and then it would go to the AWS and I would look through the data and I, I would kind of try to get an understanding of how deer use the property and what days are active on using the property and, uh, that type of stuff. And, um, you know, it became evident to me, I could do a little bit of prediction on the property, but there were things still that I was missing. And, um, from there, I, I kind of stopped the sensor stuff and I, I put together essentially like a white paper yep. and I went to a, a, a deer, some deer biologists that I knew of that were doing collar deer data. And that to me was more an accurate representation of actual movement. So everyone kind of builds models off of observational data and observational data is flawed and it's because it's observational data you know a human comes to the table with bias and um you know if you're trying to watch deer or look at deer or you're trying to use cameras to 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 nail down a a pattern or trying to learn something from deer it's just you know if you have your head down your phone and deer crosses the field then you've missed a movement vector and so there's a lot of problems with all of that so the gps data to me was the was the obvious way to do it because with the GPS data, you can look at the terrain they're going through. You can look at the mapping. You can look at the weather. You can correlate the movement with weather events. But then more importantly, you can look at the data over time. Um, deer rarely do things 
because something just happened. In other words, if a storm comes tomorrow, that data storm is here. It's not enough data to make a prediction with. And, and that's another thing that these observational models use is they just say, Oh, there's a, there's, there's rising pressure and there's a storm coming next week. And therefore there's going to be deer movement. But the more accurate way to look at that is to actually look at what deer movement's been like for the past three months to look at what weather events there are. Is there a drought? What's been going on with the deer population is CWD coming through. Is there something impacting the herd Are coyotes on the rise? All of those data points make for a more accurate model that can uh, more accurately predict deer movement. So the way to think about it would be, and if I can contextualize it for a human, is just, you know, if, a, if, a, if, a, if I'm trying to figure out how much food a human is eating in a, in a day, um, I wouldn't, you could say, well, any time the human hasn't eaten a meal, he's going to eat more in the next meal. Um, and that might work for a, a, like a small scale model that you might be able to predict, you know, how often does John eat? John eats whatever John he eats more whenever he misses a meal. He's missed lunch. Therefore we think you eat more at dinner. A more accurate model would be looking at what your calorie load has been, what your workload has been, how often are you going to the gym? How many steps do you take in a day? Um, and then uh, how many meals have you had in the past two weeks? Or what is your metabolism like? All of these other variables get fed in. And then now what we have is a more, much more accurate model. Um, and that will predict much better across time. It will be much less likely to be incorrect. And that's what we do with the deer data on Spartan Forge. I love the way you laid that out. And to bring the, uh, the contextual aspect of it, to understand that it's, 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 it's evolved and it's more involved for that matter. Um, I think people miss out on that because the observational all right, I'm, I'm just going to be frank with you. Um, some of the information that I look at when I'm deciding to go after a, a deer specifically is his individual characteristics. Um, and I know this is taking kind of a broad yep. roast stroke at uh, multiple, you know, uh, deer, male, females, what have you over multiple, you know, terrains and locations, et cetera. But, you know, there's very like specifics that individual deer uh, information that they that they reveal in their movement patterns if you can ob observe them now i'm observing them with camera data not gps collars but you have some cadence and understanding of that and there's factors of you know their interest levels in area the volume of food you know there's their health conditions at that time there's all these factors that kind of play in it that it's that's much more involved than we're just talking about a weather system coming through and i think people may not take that into account and they may buy into some of these other apps and I'm not trying to do comparisons or blow somebody out of the water, but I don't pay attention to that, those bits of information on some of these other apps, just because, I mean, it's, it's, it's par for the course. Weather systems are either going to help or hinder deer movement. I mean, that's, that's, that's a, that's a, a, a kind of broad brush statement, but it's, it's the reality of things. Um, and I've yeah. seen that time and time again, but that doesn't mean that individual deer will react the same way. And every individual deer will act that, that, that way to, to the weather systems for that matter. So I think it's very individualistic beyond kind of this GPS collar data. So I want to kind of add to, to your point. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so we, we will never build a model that will pr predict for a deer. Um, that, that's not, that's not a, a market segment that I think could become, in, um, is even feasible. And deer are person have personalities and there are deer that do more movement and less movement. And the challenge of the machine is to understand what is, what is normal for this app for this deer. So you might have two deer. So one deer that moves, let's say a thousand yards in a 24 hour period and another one that moves 3000 yards in a 24 hour period. 
the job of the neural network is to look at those two deer as individuals and, and determine kind of what their range of movement is and then what creates the ebbs and flows in that and then apply that to a herd of deer that you have information on to make general predictions. Um, deer rarely do things at the same time. So I, I kind of laugh when I see some of these other prediction apps where it's like, hey, 9 a.m. tomorrow morning is going to be the best hunting for your area. And it, it, that, yeah. The type of data that would be needed for that and the type of empirical science and, and, and research that would have to undergird that. I mean, you'd need 10,000 drones in the air um, looking at every deer across the U S and then, but what you would quickly figure out is that deer don't do that. That's not, there's not going to be ever a model that's going to have any type of scientific rigor. That's going to say, Hey, all of your deer are going to be moving tomorrow afternoon, which is why we use the bucket system that we use, which is essentially, will they be in their bedding areas? Will they be in transition during daylight hours or, or will they be in their full range? And that model only gets from a scientific perspective, only about 63% accuracy because these are wild animals we're dealing with. And there's too many things happening at the tail ends of the distribution that doesn't make it useful or even practical to try to predict that. So we do the best we can do with prediction uh, across about 2000 years of collared deer data to tell hunters generally, this is what you can expect out of the population. Now that it, it does work and it works, you know, 60 to 70% of the time, depending on the deer, but you're always going to have deer that are individuals. You're always going to have factors that can't be accounted for in the neural network that are driving movement. Um, and, and really what I'm trying to do with our neural network is just give somebody a point of contact on not if or when they should hunt, but just, if you have a day to hunt, go hunt, but here's, you know, you can look at our neural network and it'll give you a sense of how aggressive you should try to be. Um, unless you are focusing on an individual that you've got a pretty good, um, rundown on, or like the target profile on, and you understand its tendencies, it, it basically is just, okay, I've got a core area day. It means I need to be closer to bedding. I need to try to get aggressive and get close to bedding. Cause it's not likely that I'm going to be able to set a field edge and see a deer today. Um, the general population is doing X, Y, or Z. So, um, that, that to me is, um, the interesting science. And then the other part about it is, is, you know, deer don't just move for an hour or there's not just like a best hour of movement or there's not a best period time of the day of movement. Um, it's more of a general trend, um, over days of even weeks, you'll have, you know, a week or two where deer movement is low and then a week or two where it's high. Cause a lot of people will question, they'll see the network predictions and they'll be like, wow, dude, it looks like it's, there's going to be great movement in my place for a week, you know? And we're kind of programmed by these other apps to kind of say, Oh, movement's only going to be good for an hour tomorrow, or it's going to be good for three hours tomorrow, or this is the best time of the day. Right. Uh, again, I kind of went into why that's not practical to try to program things that way. But then secondly, the things that are driving um, deer movement, whether that's, you know, a hunger hormone ghrelin signaling that you're low on fat or there's a breeding season coming up or there is a drought. None of those things are alleviated with an hour or two of movement. If you've got a drought, deer are going to be moving more than it normally would be for water or staying closer to water for many weeks on end. Or if you've got a breeding season, um, you, when you compare movement during breeding seasons to movement outside of breeding seasons, it's as if the deer don't move when you compare like a buck will be covering, you know, I've got bucks on live GPS and 
Ohio and Pennsylvania and Florida where I can look up their movements at any time of the day and see how long they're moving. You know, during the rut, it's not unheard of to have a buck move 10 or 15 miles in one day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then during uh, the early summer when they're bachelored up, you might only get 700 yards of movement out of them out of a 24-hour period. So, um, and, and, the, and the reasons for that, um, when you're informing a model, then it start, then the model starts to make sense. It's like, okay, here's why I have so many full range days in a row, or I have so many core area days in a row, um, is because deer are, are responding to an environment that's driving them to do one thing or another. And often those reasons aren't satiated because they went out and moved for an hour. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And, and the, I love, I'm going to go back on a couple of things, but the, the interesting piece of this is the full range, you know, and, and the predictive modeling piece of that where, you know, what is the information that's really driving that? I mean, these deer have obviously collars on them. They're going from location to location to location, but there's always a purpose behind the movement. Obviously, breeding is is the most obvious. Um, what other factors have you kind of, you've had to generalize to some degree. It, it could be hunting pressure, right? It could be other factors that are, it could be predation. There are factors that make them move in those instances. Have you kind of started to lay out like just, you know, appreciation of all those factors in this so people understand what those might be? I mean. Uh, yeah, I mean, it really depends on where you're talking. There's no one model we use. I think right now we have like 11 or 12 different regionalized models based on our GPS data. What get deer moving in the Midwest is not what gets deer moving in the Southeast. Um for, uh, as a point of contact, humidity c- contributes greatly to, to deer movement in the southeast. Um, and, and it's not a, a level of d- humidity. It's humidity change. It's the delta between the initial state and the, and the prior state yeah. um, of humidity. So if humidity is rising or falling, um, that tends to get deer moving in the southeast. Whereas in the, in the Midwest, where I have lots of data, it's not, even, it's not really even a factor on the list. Humidity doesn't get a vote like it does in the southeast. Um, uh, flooding in the Southeast as well. And rainfall. Um, if, if I were, if someone were to ask me, what is the number one thing I should focus on in the Southeast when it comes to deer hunting and seeing deer, it's hunt when there's low, um, when there's, uh, uh, light rain, light rain really gets deer moving in the Southeast. Light rain does not get deer moving in the Midwest or in the Northeast. Like it does get them moving in the Southeast. Um, uh, cold snaps, um, people always say, oh, you know, there's a front coming, so deer are going to be moving. Um, that heuristic works sometimes, but it's more accurate to be like when you've had a pattern of storms. Uh, what I see a lot of times in the deer data in the Northeast, especially in the Midwest, is a lot of your mature animals will sit out the first cold snap um, and they'll just on their belly, especially if they've got a- access to food or if there's a good acorn um, crop that year um, and there's lots of fat. Um, they will just... They, they kind of see, I, I imagine, I don't know this because the deer don't answer the, um, the, uh, the polling the surveys, yeah, the survey. but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, a lot of mature deer will sit out the first snowstorm of the year or the two or three day snowstorm of the year. Um, because they, I, I imagine they see it as kind of like a time of instability, um, and it's changing their environment and they kind of want to learn the environment before yeah. they, the new environment before they get crazy. So whereas you'll see a lot of bucks and does, small bucks and does will be moving a lot for every storm. Your older deer will not. Um, and that definitely has an impact on the model. So, um, you'll see a lot now, what you will see is on the third or fourth big storm of the year, um, when that pressure starts um, to rise and the temperature starts to fall, then you will start to see all of the deer in a population start to move. But that's only after the first two or three storms have affected the amount of fat stores that they have on. 
So yeah. those are like some common things that, um, as I go through the data that I see, um, you know, and so some of the tropes that we have based around deer movement are sort of informed, but there's a lot more context there before you start to understand the reasons of why the thing is actually happening, the causality behind it, um, beyond just temperatures falling. Yeah. I, I think, I think diagnosing the causality, as you just stated, it, it's variable and it's, it's interesting. The predictive modeling piece of this is you're taking an effect and analyzing this data at a very fine level and, and finding trends to some degree to help your predictive modeling. I, and, and this is difficult for people to understand because again, you're kind of looking at these populations uh, at a, at a, at a macro level, so to speak. Right. Um, and yep. I'm assuming you're, you're, you know, presuming, you know, deer of average health and there's instances where deer fall outside of that. Right. Some are superior, some are less superior, but then the movement patterns, I think, which is most critical right now is, you know, what are the jaunts and distances these deer are moving on an average basis? That's probably all over the place. And it's, it's probably very specific to the herd dynamics and, and the amount of deer available in those, those landscapes. And on top of that, the personalities and preferences, um, what are you seeing? I mean, like, can you give me some examples of maybe just modeling that you've looked at, maybe an individual deer, their distances that they've they've moved, um, and maybe a trend of certain deer uh, in certain areas, and, and just some information on that because people are interested in, you know, is my deer moving ten miles away that I was tracking two weeks ago, is or is he moving, you know, fifty miles or five miles or what? Maybe some averages so people have some an idea. <laughs> Yeah, so it's really that those the numbers that you're asking for there really drive to personality of the deer. Mm-hmm. Um, does seem to be more um, general in that regard, but when you're coming to like specific deer, um, that question gets answered better when you know like what's the what's the um, uh, what is the time of year that this is happening? Is there are there does standing? Is there is there mating happening? Is there is it the late season? What's the season been like? But, you know, on average, like during the rut, um, you know, I'm recalling, I believe it was a study that I had done um, down in Alabama, but I had bucks on that same property during the rut that kind of had like competing rut tactics. One, one rut tactic of the bucks that I saw year after year on certain bucks was they would follow individual doe groups and just wait for the doe group to come into heat. Now that guy... Um, would not be moving that much in a, in a, in a day, maybe, you know, I say that much, but it's still the rut. So he's still moving uh, between one and three miles, um, in the, during daylight hours, which, you know, for a buck is a lot during that time of the year, but then you'll have these other bucks that will be just winding, um, you know, they'll get downwind of does, um, and working scrapes and they'll be going doe group to doe group. Those guys, I can see those guys move between 10 and 15 miles in a day because they're basically running and checking every doe group that they know of. Um, so it's really a, a spectrum of movement. Um, but it's, it's a, it's having that type of data driven approach, um, can kind of help you understand, uh, the, 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 the individual movement patterns associated with those bucks that comes down to, to personality. But during the early season, you know, it's, it's far less movement. Uh, if you were, you could think of it this way, um, lower amounts of movement, movement in a smaller area. But then if you could find that area, those deer become very huntable. But then as you get to the rut, the range gets larger. Um, and, 
and their, the ability for multiple people to see that buck across multiple properties increases. Um, but there's not really like a hard and fast number across the U S. Um, I believe you're up in Pennsylvania. Those are some of the largest numbers. Um, when I, like a deer that we have tagged, uh, there's a military base and armory that we have tagged deer at though. It's not uncommon to see those deer do between seven and, and 10 miles a day. Yeah. And I, um, I think it's during this time of year, I didn't expect to have a re- exact number out of you, of course, but you know, it's interesting to know that there's a trend and that trend deviates over time um, from yeah, sure. standard and it's seasonal, right? Because of the breeding cycle. All right. I want to yep. ask a more specific question. Um, and I think a lot of people pay attention to this. I pay attention to this from just camera data, right? So that's just purely observation data, timing of movement. So, you know, NDA came out with a study, you know, most, most deer are moving, you know, morning and night at, at certain intervals of time. Right. And yep. I, I, I see that to be a trend, obviously during certain periods of time, right. Seasonality that, that obviously affects um, their eating cycles, depending on this type of food that they have in their locations will also change that movement pattern and cycle. But in this time, like right specific, we're talking early November, mid November, late November into that breeding cycle period. Um, are you noticing deer take breaks? Uh, are a lot of deer resting at certain intervals? Can, can you, are you finding trends or is there any instances where they're moving all day long? They're not stopped moving. I mean, they're wearing their body down tremendously. I mean, you're seeing probably trends both ways, but do you see deer taking breaks and resting themselves? Now it could be conditional, right? They need to thermoregulate. They need to find, you know, landscape preferences that may help benefit them from a, a breeding or analysis cycle where they can find those resident does. Um, but you know, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you're finding data and trends where they don't move all the time or some instances they're moving quite frequently. And this correlates directly to the way you've contextualized this into kind of transition, bedding. Um, and then the third one was uh, uh, full range movement. So I kind of want to get some more intel on how you've categorized things. And does that relate to kind of trends of movement um, that you're seeing on the landscape? Yeah, so specifically speaking to bucks, it's, it, uh, during this time of the year, it is really depending on what the doe are doing um, and, 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 and the tactic that that buck is using, whether he's just going doe group to doe group or he is, um, or he is doing um, the, the technique where we talked about before where he's tracking individual does. In that case, in both of those cases, though, um, the buck that is going group to group is traveling much more. The the buck that is um, following with those does could be traveling less. Um, and and really, it it boils down to seeing them paired up with does and following does. I do see, the, no matter what, and you alluded to this at the beginning, the majority of the movement is happening on if you're looking at a 24 hour period in the morning and in the afternoon at dusk. So during those two periods, uh, you know, are going to account for between 60 and 70% of the deer's overall movement throughout the day, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it is. So if you're, if, if you just, for instance, I'm going to say for, for sake of ease, that a deer moves a thousand yards in a day um, between the hours of a half hour before sunrise and sunset and a half hour of, 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 I'm sorry, a half hour before and after sunrise and sunset. 60 to 70% of their movement that that buck or doe is going to make throughout the day is during those times. And that almost never changes except during the rut. And then if during the rut, uh, I generally see, I have, but with the exception of some older bucks where I see that they're bedding down for the day and not competing in the first rut, which I've seen, especially in the South, I've seen a lot of that data, older bucks that just aren't competing as often in the rut and they're competing more in the secondary rut. 
um, than they are actually in the primary rut, which is an interesting thing all of its own. I think I could do a podcast on that all on my own. Um, but what, but it's just the bucks are running and they're running all of the time. Um, on, I've got a lot of good data out of some studies in the Southeast, uh, in in the Georgia area and the South Carolina area where these deer are losing 45% of their, um, physical mass during the rutting period. So this deer gets tagged with a GPS, um, and he weighs, you know, uh, 220 pounds, 230 pounds or something like that. Um, and then they are, the, the collar is dropping or they're darting the deer again, uh, after the rutting season is over. And now we're talking February, March, and that deer is now 165, 170 pounds. Yeah. So those, those are just bucks that are running all of the time. And they just don't turn off and they're constantly going, they will bed down and take breaks or whatever, especially if the dough is hot and they're on that dough, they'll take that opportunity to mull and eat or whatever. But for the most part during, you know, say about two weeks before the the peak of the rut and about a week to 10 days after it's pretty much go time for them. And they're moving as really often. Now that's not saying you won't see individuals that are betting or you won't see that they're not betting with the does, but it's, they know it's their opportunity and they're running as much as they can. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so this other trend that came up, uh, people have talked about midday movement and you, you've seen this hunting. I've seen this hunting where there's that midday movement and they're like, all right, that's a, that's an identifier that the breeding cycle is on. Um, what's, yep. what's your theory and thought on that? Uh, what is my theory about the midday movement? Yeah, midday movement. And, and here's what I'm, I want to be clear on this. Large jaunt, so an expanded movement pattern versus just a uh, small jaunt. Um, and and the, the difference there, because I think that's what people are observing. They're, they're, they're seeing expanded movement rather than contracted movement during these breeding phases and cycles. Uh, have you yeah, noticed absolutely. those trends? There's yeah. A- yeah, absolutely. I see the midday movement. Um, you know, uh, I call it kind of like I'm, I've been calling saying it to myself. Maybe I read this somewhere else, but I'm not sure. I kind of call it like the second shift. Um, and I'll see it a lot, especially between like bucks of like three and six years old. Um, that mid afternoon, again, they're checking the bedding. They're going around and looking for those hot does because, you know, that time period is constricted. And I definitely see a lot of that midday movement. I mean, I, a lot of people will do like the all day rut stands. I, after seeing as much GPS data as I've seen, I don't do the all day rut stands. I will change, I will hunt all day, but I will be changing my sets and where I'm hunting. Um, in the mornings, I, mornings and afternoons, I'll focus on those doe groups and getting downwind of those doe groups. Um, and then what I do is I map out and try to understand where all of the doe bedding areas are. And then during that midday shift, I'll be focusing on choke points, um, especially vegetative, not so much topographic, especially in, in, um, in pressured regions. Uh, the deer don't really use saddles like you think they would, or some of the other traditional features that people kind of build their hunts around, yep. but they definitely stick to cover. Um, whenever they're trying to move in between these places. So, you know, I'll physically map it out on a map. And now this is, of course, I haven't really been doing any hunting for the past couple of years since I started this business. So um, <laughs> before yeah. I, when I, when I did have the time, you know, I would bet, I would mark out on my map in my area, all of my doe beds. And I've been looking at the GPS data for about eight years now. Um, and I will focus on the heaviest cover that kind of gets bucks from A to Z. 
um, in an area. And that's where I'll spend, spend what I call the second shift is sitting in, in between there where these doe, uh, these bucks are kind of using this cover to get between doe bedding areas during the daylight hours. But definitely that is a thing that I'm seeing there. And then the second thing that I think is really interesting is almost all of your three to seven year old bucks, the mature bucks that we have on a lot of this GPS data, were also engaged between one to three excursions where they're just going totally off their, their pattern or their area and they're traveling um, to a place where either they spent their years when they were young, uh, before they were sexually mature, like their first 18 months, or um, just a totally random area where they go off. And that's kind of like when you start seeing these bucks that you've never seen before on your camera, uh, if it's a buck that you want to kill, you need to key on them right away because they're probably not going to be in that area for long. So, they do do these excursions. Yeah, so this is an interesting data point. And I think a lot of people miss that one. I'm going to go back to the one statement you did make uh, about dense cover and then hunting. And we'll, we've talked about this from a design standpoint, how to design your property around these type of movements and focusing in, in transit. Uh, the other piece, this this jaunting thing where, where deer goes off in these excursions, this is also a critical point. So when you're designing your hunting property, and I'll throw this in as a left field comment. Uh, I, I focus on with all my clients continue to put uh, attractive, uh, we, we call it increasing the value of your property. So you're creating a high level attraction all season long because you don't know when that deer has spent time, uh, has interest or has been on your property. Um, and most people don't have that type of data, but Trust me, those deer eventually come back to these properties that may they may have been born on, or yep. they may have spent some time on uh, through the winter months in my area. Deer trying to have some migration type, you know, jaunts essentially uh, because of snow load. Um, they become preferential to some of these areas. So don't be, uh, I guess, mi be mindful of the fact that information like this is relevant because continue to create a value of you know, a proposition for these deer to be on your property may lead to this random movement that day that you ha happen to be hunting on your property that you become successful on a deer that maybe was there at one time or, or the other that you weren't aware of that isn't your, you know, resident deer, so to speak. So I, I think that's an important bit of data, uh, at least from a design standpoint. Um, yeah, I agree. And like, you know, if I had two factors that I needed to focus on, I would focus on girls and cover. Food is almost tertiary in that regard, like I'll see in GPS studies, um, a lot of times deer bucks at night will travel a long way for food. Um, that's not how they choose their bedding and it's not really how they choose to spend their bedding during the day. I'm not saying they won't is obviously if they're not pressured, they'll, they'll take whatever you give them. But when it comes down to like, you can, you know, there's three things that I focus on when I focus on deer and deer hunting, which is, uh, you know, in the military with, you know, when we start talking about tracking targets, we talk about screening, covering and flow. Um, bucks kind of use the same thing, but it's bedding, covering and bedding covers, cover, bedding and girls and then food. Um, uh, the food is kind of like the last thing on the list for me. You know, obviously you want to provide them food and you want to plant food. And if you can do that, do it. But if somebody's got like a small piece of property, um, I see bucks really hold to areas where there's great cover and great bedding. Um, especially for the daylight hours, um, as the bucks get older and wiser, those are really things that they key on. Um, and then when you actually get to walk through these areas where, um, which I've done a couple of times now where you start seeing these six, seven, eight, nine year old bucks hang out. It is just like, when you get to the area, you perfectly understand why they've selected it. Um, and you almost get like a chill up your spine because you're like, wow, this buck is almost impossible to kill because the way that he's erected this, yeah. this area that he's chosen. 
Yep. And then the second thing that is interesting about that, I think, is if that buck does get killed, there'll be another buck in there in a week or two or maybe a month um, because, you know, it's kind of like the prime bedding area. Um, so when you can create those types of sanctuaries on your property where the bucks really feel comfortable um, and they have that cover and that bedding, um, that, 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 that uh, I know in my experience is hugely value, valuable. And then yeah. the having girls. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's fun the way that you broke that down. And we've talked on the other land managers that are part of this podcast have said something very similar to what we we've just talked about. Uh, and Johnny Stewart's been on this and we talked about those kind of areas that are, are not accessible, right. That, that are like keyed in on by these, these primary or, or, or in this case, more mature bucks. Part two of that is adding food into these bedding areas to make them highly attractive to, again, hold and attract deer. And food can be in different forms. We've talked about that on multiple podcasts. But it's thinking more intricately about these designs and layouts. And it's funny, your data is kind of proving that out. So I'm interested to probably talk more with you, Bill. And I think this is a great introduction to you. Um, And I'm going to, you know, you're not a, this is nice because you're not a sponsor of my podcast and I don't have any sponsors on this podcast, but I, I want people to take a look at your app and I want them to take a look at, you know, you gave some real factual bits of information of what we're looking at and you're saying trending data, predictive modeling, and you know, what probability of, of movement in these core areas or these transitional areas, et cetera. I think it's important to start looking at your landscape like that and breaking it down in kind of that manner, because realistically, it isn't just about weather. There's a lot of other indices that are going into this. And I think I'd like to have you on again to talk about more of those indices and factors. And I want to talk about terrain, spatial distribution of deer, male, female, those type of things, and trends that you're seeing kind of across the landscape. So if we can get you on a part two, I know you're super busy. I'd appreciate it. So yeah, anytime, anytime. I, and I'm sorry, I've you know, postponed a couple of times, but it's just a busy part of the season. But I'm happy to come on and talk about this and focus specifically on these things. Um, I can even send you some snapshots of some of the d- data that I'm talking about and referencing. Uh, if you tee up some of those questions for me, I can have that data um, ready and I can send it off to you. That way you can share it with your users to kind of contextualize the things that we're talking about because I think some of it can get abstract. Yeah. Um, until you're actually looking at the points on a map and then it starts to make sense. Yeah. And I got a quick question for you at the end. The fact that you've looked at this data for over eight years and you're analyzing it and you're kind of contextualizing it, you're humanizing it to some degree as well to make it make sense to you and people around you. Does it make, does it almost baffle you? I mean, some of this is happenstance. People kind of walk into these situations. Now I'm working on properties where we're designing them for movement. But when you're walking into kind of a natural landscape, does it a bit baffle you on the success rates and probability of success knowing, you know, you can break these things down. A lot of this is instinctual. You take a guy like Johnny, even me, uh, and we, we go at a landscape type and we're starting to break it down. But again, understanding movement patterns and chances and probability, I mean, it's it, it becomes kind of daunting. Analysis paralysis kind of example. Do you run into that yourself now that you are so knowledgeable and you've seen these trends, but you also know that there's anomalies and there's things that you can't necessarily predict. I mean, how, how, how does that, how's that impacted you as, as a hunter? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is when I start looking at some of these mature bucks, it's a wonder that I've ever killed any of them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think a lot of times this is just, they're screwing up and I happen to be in the area. Yeah. Um, uh, the second thing is I, I do get some paralysis from analysis, but what I, what I tend to do, um, and I'm doing it with my app now and we're building more stuff into the app that's going to help people 
beat the paralysis by analysis by actually factually showing them like, Hey, you know, you reported best movement on this stand. Um, this is the, this is the, the win that's associated with that. Here's your prediction for these areas. Here are your top three stands. I'll be building that stuff into the application to help people with that. But for right now, I think it's important for you to have like a buddy that's removed from your decision cycle to just kind of help them present them data. It's what I do with my friends. Like I'll call up Johnny Stewart or someone else and say, here's the three things I'm looking at, you know, help me make a decision here. Then just roll with that person's decision because I, a lot of times um, being the type of thinker that I am yeah. can wrap myself around the axle where I'm not even making a decision because I can't buy any anything. So I think <laughs> that's where it's important to have somebody yeah. on the horn who can, help you make that decision and move through it. If you're anything like I am, which is I absolutely can suffer from that, yeah. um, that paralysis by analysis, but you know, that's what buddies are for, um, uh, to, to kind of bounce those things off of. And that's kind of how I've gotten around it. Um, but then when I'm alone somewhere, or I'm doing an out of state hunter, I'm, you know, a place like that. I, I just still come up with my, you know, seven to 10 things that I consider when I'm looking at an area, I will still jot them down in my little engineering book that I take everywhere. And I'll actually just do a cost, you know, uh, essentially what we call in the military, a military decision-making process, a procedural look at what informs your decision matrix and then make my decision based on that when I write things down. So it's kind of just like writing down the pluses and minuses of a particular area and then actually stepping away from it for a minute, coming back to it and looking at it and then making your decision, I think is another useful way to do it. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing that you have some listeners that are just like us when it comes to um, trying to get as much info as they, as they need to, because it's part of the fun. It's part of the challenge. Yeah. I think um, it's, it's putting the story together and that decision tree analysis that you're talking about, what are those factors, right? So I think next time we can dig into some, you know, Bill Thompson, what his factors are going in and think about some of your hunts this year that you've, you've been on and uh, things that you've done in the past that have helped you kind of make make it through these decisions because I think a lot of people, that's where they're going to struggle. They do not know what to do. They do not what, you know, it falls apart when the pressure gets hot and you need to have some real kind of standard practices. Like when I design a hunting property, I have requirements in play before I even get there. I don't even know what the property looks like, but I'm able to diagnose a property because of, you know, my requirements that I've built into my process. It's the same thing. It's all systematic. So I would say in your case, that is the case uh, in concert with the GPS data and other trends and analysis that you've done. So um, I'm going to let you go because we got a ton of information out of you. I'm going to get you on here again when I can strangle you and and find time in your schedule. And then we'll uh, we'll poke you in the eye and get get more information out of you. Because I think to me, this has been awesome. I love I love having new people on this podcast and a different perspective. And like I said, go check out his app. I think it's uh, a good place to start and you know bill will tell us more in the future all right well i appreciate you having me on and i look forward to talking again all right man talk soon see ya yep bye maximize your hunt is a production of whitetail landscapes for more information on how john teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt check out whitetail landscapes.com